Okay, do you guys have your phones out? Because I was going to start with like a with a pop quiz, but you're allowed to cheat. I do. Do you, Andrew? <laughs> I can get mine. Yeah, it's right here. All right. So how many emails are in your inbox right now? Oh, well, that one I know instantly. I don't even have to cheat for that. <laughs> <laughs> I have over 1,500 emails in my inbox right now. It's a disaster. It's the only time in my life it's gotten this bad. Oh, my gosh. Unread? 1,500 unread? Well, no, yeah, un, no way. Un, <laughs> like uh, skimmed red and unread. Yeah. How about you, Sachin? Well, right now I have nine inboxes, and I don't know what the total. <laughs> he doesn't even have one inbox. No, sorry, eight inboxes, <laughs> and I don't know what the total is across them. But let's see: fourteen, seven, eleven, four, ten, six, twenty-one, seven, and then one is empty. Okay, I never so... knew I never knew Megan's question would get this complicated an answer from the two of us. <laughs> I'm honestly shocked. <laughs> I thought it was going to be high, but that's pretty high. That's a lot. Well, I will say that Sachin and I have both like obsessed about inbox zero for a long time, and I know there are long stretches where we've kept it at zero. Not today. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Welcome to the Center of Attention, the podcast exploring how digital behavior relates to the attention economy at large. I'm Megan Radonia, the show's producer, and I'm here with Parsley's co-founders and the show's co-hosts, Sachin Kamdar and Andrew Montalenti. Hi, Sachin. What up? <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Hey there. All right, so this is the point that I wanted to make, right? That our inboxes are a really crowded space. Uh, Last episode, we talked with Danya Henninger, who's the editor at Billy Penn, about how they grow membership. And in that conversation, newsletters came up. Newsletters were really core to their strategy, um, and especially in encouraging return visitors. So I wanted to come back to that topic and get a little bit more specific about creating email, building emails that are going to stand out in these inboxes that have nine inboxes or 1500 emails or you know spaces that are crowded but are important people read their email people have their phones on them all the time to go deeper into the topic i touched base with quartz's product manager eva scazero quartz has a fantastic lineup of newsletters and eva's in the thick of it and she explained what goes into the process of creating an engaging newsletter and how they built community through email especially using examples from their email called obsession um, so I, I just want to uh, talk a little bit about how important email is to me personally, um, to the degree where I was walking my dog the other morning. It's like, I think I talked about in this in another episode, I don't have anything on me. So it's like my time to just think about stuff. And I was just thinking about like what I would be doing as CEO of Parsley if I didn't have a computer and I wasn't in email. Yeah. And like, I just didn't, I don't know what people did before computers and email. Like when know. they were running things, like what, they were just writing stuff down? That sounds insane to me. It um, like, sounds so slow. I guess that's why the mailroom was so like... I, hopping. That's a, a <laughs> that's place how you to made be. it, right? Um, yeah. I guess so. I guess that's the case. And and so I think it's really important. I think like if you're really trying to grab somebody's attention, though email is a very old system in like I guess the digital modern age, it's still a very important way that uh, a bunch of different people spend their time, especially I think at work. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, do you think that email is going to un endure even with younger generations? Because I've heard some people say that, you know, college students and high school students, they think email is this like really weird, boring place 
very formal, you know, so. Well, Andrew, result, you know like, this just as much as I do, that there's been a kind of startup Silicon Valley effort maybe over the past 10 years to kill email, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's been like done in a variety of different ways. I, I R.I.P. Google Wave. That's what yeah. I was about to say. I remember when we were first starting Parsley, we were in that like uh, factory with our desk and we were watching the Google Wave introduction that was going to destroy email and that was a failure. And I think there are like innovations that have uh, come up that help drive better communication in some respects like Slack, but Slack certainly has not killed email for me like they claim they would do um, You know, when they first launch. If anything, I kind of treat my inbox as more important, dedicated communication, time, thought, um, than I do on Slack. So in a, in a certain way, it's made email a little bit more important for me. So yeah, I, don't, I think it will stand the test of time. Um, it, there's just something to the, uh, asyncness of it, uh, where you're getting information as you decide how to get the information and you're creating information as you decide how to create information. It's kind of within your control. It doesn't exist in something that is more kind of real-time driven, more push and pull driven by external factors. I guess the controversial view I'll take is that if Google and similar services hadn't made email really easy through hosted services like Gmail, I think email might have actually had a chance of dying. Like if it all relied upon you having to configure some desktop or mobile email client and connect to servers and authenticate yourself that way, the way email used to work, then I think it would just be as good as dead. But I think because email has kind of turned into this open protocol that also has like really good apps built around it like Gmail. And it's just as easy to set up an email account as it is to set up like any kind of social media account or anything else. I think it's got a good chance of enduring as a result of that. Yeah, I think it's just interesting that it has endured given all the like different ways we can communicate now ranging from snail mail to phone calls to text messages to social platforms to real-time chat um, to, you know, Snapchat disappearing stuff, like to all these different platforms that we could use. It's still kind of amazing to me that email just hasn't gone away because like every single year there's like a new way to communicate with somebody. Well, I think it's because email has something essential that all those other platforms don't, which is that it's asynchronous and you read it on your own schedule, right? So I think that people still, like, for example, why do people use email newsletters at all? You know, for example, you could just go to quartz.com and visit the content. Why sign up for a newsletter? Why sign up for any number of newsletters that other publishers put out? And the answer is because I want to be able to get an update when news comes out and kind of this curated view of content, but I want to read it on my own schedule. And maybe if I have a few minutes to kill and I'm checking my inbox anyway, I'll check that out, but I'm not going to explicitly remember to go back to a site over and over again, just to get an update. It's personal. And I think that there's, yeah, it's personal to you and yeah, it gets kind of gets you into a habit that's different. It's more of like a feed reading habit rather than a uh, web browsing habit, which has a lot more intent associated with it. So and then I think for what you were saying about being a CEO of a company and in general in business and in management, how pervasive email is for teams and for cross-team communication, 
it's the same exact reason, right? There's a difference between picking up a phone and interrupting someone in the middle of their workday as opposed to sharing information with them via email. And um, I think all publishers are doing is taking advantage of the fact that a whole lot of attention is being spent in email apps just the way it's being spent in browsers and in social media platforms. And uh, occasionally people want to break from whatever they're using email normally for, right? Like whether it's work or, or personal stuff or whatever else. All right. So let's turn it over to Eva and her insights about how they're building email out quartz. Um, I think, you know, the power of direct traffic is that it's an environment that you own. So you're able to control the experience that you're giving to readers. And like we've talked about, it's something that's personal. Um, it's something that hasn't changed for a while. And it's something that you can do on your own time asynchronously. So I spoke with Eva about how she and her team are, you know, experimenting with email about the newsletter metrics that matter to them. Um, and we talked a lot about an email that I'm personally a big fan of called Obsession, which is a daily newsletter that goes into a niche topic. And in order to build Obsession, they're really in tune with responding to reader feedback and even incorporating it to shape the newsletter product. There's a beautiful communication right now between us and our readers. And I basically am exposed to this through reading what people email back to us. People are emailing us all day long. They love us. Sometimes they hate us. Um, Sometimes they're correcting us. (laughs) So... One of the things I'm wondering if it was what you had wanted from the get-go or if it was a, um, a happy byproduct of creating the newsletters is that volume of reader response. Were you setting out to engage readers through the newsletter or was the amount of comments that you're getting back um, something that came as a surprise to you and the team? So we definitely expected uh, for the Courts Obsession uh, specifically we were not prepared for the amount of people who wanted to speak to us. And so very quickly after we launched it, we had to meet. It was like product designer, myself, um, the and the editor of the email, and I think like a fellow who was helping us with like producing it and pushing it out. Um, and so we had a meeting and we said, okay, we do not want to lose out on this. We can see the community forming right before our eyes. We have any, We don't even know what to do with them. And so we basically started sketching out like how to solve this. So we just need a channel for this information to live. We need them to be able to communicate to us in a way that makes them feel heard. Those were our like bullet points. And so uh, what we did was we said, okay, we are going to um, like we try. We basically started reading people's responses that were coming in, and we were like, okay, we can basically put in three buckets. There are people who are re- um, responding to very specific content so maybe we can actually focus those and turn them into like prompts maybe we should just be asking them questions since they want to talk um and then we can also group it into like feedback uh um, like if there is something that we missed about a story and they are like, I'm actually in this part of the world right now and you're missing this key element and we can, we would like that information. We can't be everywhere at once. So like that turned into how can we have our readers help us report a little bit? Um, so that was sort of a bucket. And then just ideas of like, I want you to cover this. I want this to be an obsession. I want to learn more about this became a bucket. And so that turned into a sound off card, which we added to the email, which was basically a very, very low lift. It was like, we made a prompt. We said, like, here's the, here's the way you give us feedback. Here's the way you give us new ideas of what you want us to cover. And all it is is a reply to link. Uh, sorry, a, a mail to link where you click it and it opens up like a pre-composed email, which is a very, very simple thing to build. Um, and that way they could like right away send it off at, to us. And so then we just took a Gmail inbox and we created three filters of like feedback prompt responses and ideas and that's what exists and that was enough to be like okay like 
we have we are putting them somewhere safe and when we have the capacity we can go in and then use that material back in but this is a very small team of people at that point there was only one person writing the email and editing it and doing everything and i you know the design team engineering team and the product manager myself we have a billion other projects going on as well so that was sort of like we need to solve this immediately what can we do about it um and that was a solution we landed on I want to dive into a specific example of an obsession email because I think um, in talking about it, we'll kind of hit on all these things that you've mentioned, how many people and how many departments go into creating an email, how this reader engagement is growing and how it informs design. And um, I'm very curious to talk about the Mezcal Obsession newsletter, which is um, one that we'd been talking about earlier because of how it was built off of a reader's reply. So could you tell us a little bit about that specific email? Yeah, so after we were like, okay, collecting people's emails and once in a while reading through, there is a majority of them that are just like, you know, not that useful information. Curious, really cool, they want to talk to us about it. But then there's like one every like 20 responses, there's gold. And then we, like we're in Slack sharing it with one another, like I can't believe this reader knows this. Like, do you think it's true? And um, like, are they smarter than us? Oh my God. (laughs) Um, And so that turned into like, let's figure out how to recycle it into the email. The Mezcal email um, was basically the turning point of like really high engagement because we proved to the readers that we are totally listening, we are totally reading responses, and we're even picking things to publish. Like that's a really cool thing that we built into our process. And so um, this was the one that was our favorite. We had done a few reader responses in the emails before this, but this was definitely like, I mean, we all were like, we nailed it. (laughs) Um, And so basically a few emails before this, we had... You know, every day we'd make a prompt like we would just ask each other like, "What would be like a f- what would be a teaser?" Because like we don't want to give away the upcoming topic. Mm-hmm. So a few days before Mescal was like, you know, we knew we were going to publish this email. So now it was like, okay, let's let's read through um, and see if there's potential in answers to a specific question. And that question ended up being, um, "Tell us about your favorite Mescal recipes." Or we may have made it a little bit more subtle, but it was it had something to do with like. It nodded to Mescal without telling you we're about to write an email to Mes- about Mescal. Um, and so we found an incredible response by this woman named Katie. Um, and not only did she give us the recipe for a cocktail that sounded delicious, she was like, I study this and it's so important. And like it was like she had so much richness in that response. And we were just amazed. And we were like, oh, my gosh, we have to use this. Like this is valuable information that um, that readers will want to know about. And so it just fit really well publishing it with the email that we were already writing. It is sort of an acknowledgement to the fact that like we're totally, we're, we got you, like we are on it. Um, and some of them do generally give us ideas or like connect dots that we were like, oh, I didn't realize so many people wanted to talk about this. Is there a back and forth when you do get um, reader feedback and it starts to inform what you're going to put into the newsletter, how uh, maybe a new um, like segment or... Um I don't know if there's a better word for it, but like a, a certain section in the newsletter. Are, is there ever a dialogue that goes between different members of your team in order to bring that to fruition? Oh, totally. Um, so we do lots of little explorations of, of like what, what do we, you know, we see that readers have needs. We need to translate that into action. Um, and so an example is like we notice that like, 
people were really responding well when we would hyperlink a previous email that was maybe like from last year or like from before they had subscribed or it was just one they never got around to reading. And we would pull that into a present email in some context. Um, like we would be like, oh, because remember we wrote about this and that's actually connected to that. And um, people responded well. And so we started thinking about like, okay, how can we package these? Like we basically have this like pile of information and we're experimenting with how to package it so that you know, people aren't missing out. If they can't read it every single day, it is a lot of information. Um, so that's one thing we're playing around with. And those are cons- consistent, like, conversations with the editorial where they're like, did you guys like this? We just put these two things together. Should we frame it in a different way? Like, should we make this card more obvious that this is what we're getting at? Should we put it in a different area of the email? Because um, they have the power to drag those cards around. So um, Questions like that are bounced back and forth like all day long. Um, there are things like the, we have a subreddit called Obsessive Obsessives. <laughs> it's very difficult for me to say. Um, and that's a really cool place that came out of the growth team actually. And they basically are exactly what they sound like. Um, they they focus a lot on QZ.com and um, you know SEO solutions and optimizing for all these things. But we are now uh, getting a, a bit more resources for email, which is really interesting um, to have someone just sort of like serving that purpose. So we try the best we can to make it a two-way street because I think that you don't even have to be doing all the work of engaging, but you have to create at least the illusion that you are not just here to get ad clicks. Or you're not just here to get something from these people. You have to be giving something to these readers before you ask for any information, before you ask for your surveys and your whatever. And I think e-commerce, it's really difficult and that's where like they really struggle with like, they're constantly like asking you for information and then they forget to give you things. So then they're just like throwing coupons at you. It feels like extra work, um, but it ultimately is the work because it's the only thing that like the, that brings us to the long-term loyalty that to courts is the value of the emails mm-hmm. as a whole. As, would you say that that's one of the ultimate goals, long-term loyalty? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, we're we looking at weekly active users as sort of like a metric right now to peg like we getting you in the door is fabulous and we should totally invest resources in doing that. But if you're not staying in the door, you are not worth that much to us long term. It's really interesting talking to you about challenges, both on kind of a product specific level and then more generally. So like thinking about um, creating newsletters and collaborating with people and people all over the world and how you do that, as well as you want to go for breadth as well as depth and how do you reach more people. And so I think a lot of content creators, publishers, brands, like all kinds of organizations have been looking to email, especially recently, especially as a backlash, I think, from social referral traffic and all kinds of other things that you can't depend on as much, kind of turning to newsletters as a new source of growth, of loyalty, of revenue. So are there things that you've picked up along the way that you think um, are challenges that other publishers should keep in mind? Or maybe some things that are that are specific to creating newsletters that you think publishers maybe don't think about until they actually dive in and, and start the process. Email is such an archaic system and it's very limited. But honestly, when there are limitations, there is so much opportunity for creativity because the constraints are right in front of you. Like when there are requirements, there is action. Like we cannot do this, we can do this. Great, like let's figure it out. Um, and I honestly think that there's 
a, like definitely opportunity to think of email as a community shaper. So we, I think traditionally it's like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, that's where community lives, forums, comment sections, like that equals community because it's so like, it's visual, you can see it, um, you can like it, you know, and you can follow it. And so it's such a tangible community that you can see through tagging and things. And so I think we just need to get out of that a little bit. So like if we do not trust Facebook's algorithms and we don't trust thing and we don't want to depend on search and like if we're feeling like we need to be liberated from that, then we need to understand that a pl- email like platform a, a platform like email is sort of an incredible tool because there's no like there's no monopoly like yes gmail is kind of a monopoly but the actual architecture of how email works is like the same across the board um the way unsubscribing works mechanically like all of these things um are the same so like it's an even playing field like no one has an advantage because email is annoying for everybody (laughs) um but there are like things you can do you can play with time you can play with color and typography and content like there's there it's like when you get a project from a professor and it's like if he tells you to do whatever you want that's like the most impossible thing to accomplish but for like very specific constraints you're like okay i know that this is now not a possibility and this is but now these are all the things that i can control where at facebook and google search and all these things we feel like there's a lack of control you have so much opportunity to control in email as long as you know the rules and you know what works which does take experimentation and knowledge and things do change gmail has an update and then everything breaks like that happens (laughs) to me constantly um and they have things like email clippings and where they'll just completely cut your email off after a certain size yahoo doesn't do that but yahoo has separate problems so like there is a distinction and like we need to understand the platform if we're like email is the new thing we have to push 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 things in front of people where that's the way you get the views like yeah that's the way you're gonna get the views right now but the minute you start annoying these people it's like a very high risk risk situation like if you ruin your relationship with this reader off of your first email or off of whatever there's no there's no way to get that back like there is in other platforms. Once you're seen as annoying in an inbox, like that's your sacred spot. Like if you are seen as annoying, very unlikely you're gonna get that reputation back. So thinking of it as like a journey and, and putting yourself like if you're using email, then you need to be like, how am I using email? And what do I hate about email? I hate when subject lines are tacky or I hate when X thing happens and like being a uh, like a t- like in touch with that because there's no like super expert superpower company who's going to tell us all about email like there is for Facebook and Twitter and all these things where it's like well we just have to deal with the tides and like <laughs> no you can totally call, you can totally take ownership over the email environment and the platform from experimenting with obsession specifically we've been talking a lot about it have you seen any um any growth there or any kind of exciting stats around the newsletter as time has gone on yeah so our weekly active users are definitely growing a lot i'm not allowed to share that information um but they are growing so that's really really um motivating honestly um and we have i did pull this data which is that 10,000 people um, over the over last year, or from September 2017 to September 2018, that was the first year of the Obsession email, um, 10,000 people, individual people, have written to us 
um, and engage with us in a very tangible way. Like these are not like, hi, you made a typo. Like these are like real conversations. Um, so that was like a really interesting thing. Um, that data wasn't actually in front of me. I ended up just going to the inbox and like calculating it. Um, and really, really awesome because it's difficult. It's not like we're seeing these people and it's difficult to feel like this information is always being heard. I mean, Twitter, Twitter is great, a way to like for people to see how people react and how they share it themselves. Um, but that was really an interesting, like, I mean, 10,000 people to take the time to type something out to us. And there was no comment section. Like they had to type something for real uh, into an email and send it and click that and all those things. Um, so that was a really cool piece of data. No, I love that every kind of piece of what you could, what is technically data, whether it's somebody writing back in or it is open rate or whatever it may be, you're thinking about it in the context of it's a person. Like there's somebody in their experience that is creating this number or this action. And it's not just that, it's more than that. Yeah. And it honestly is hard to remember because it's not like on Facebook where we have faces like full names even you know like you've got these obscure email addresses that over 700,000 of them yeah (laughs) yeah you have a lot of email addresses and some people are like love us sometimes and other people don't like I got an email the other day from someone who was like I unsubscribed because I was on like a digital fast but now I'm like super stressed because my fast is over and I really want the email back and and I was like oh my god that's adorable like they disappeared (laughs) but they were like take me back yeah and that was a very human moment um and I think part of my job is like making sure that the humanity behind the readers is surfaced and thought about um, when we're thinking about what tests we want to run, when we're thinking about, um, you know, money we might put behind a paid promotion and like just remembering that there's actually people. And so we need to figure out what's important to the people. So I thought it was interesting that Eva and her team were so in tune with their readers and you know the fact that 10,000 people wrote to them in the first year really stood out to me. And as company founders and you know creators of products has there ever been a time when user feedback or you know responses from people have influenced you, influenced your way of thinking, influenced design at Parsley? Oh yeah, I mean, in general, that's the uh, the way startups build products that people want is by just going out there with something small and then listening to what they say and how they react to it. Um, I think you'd find that if you talk to anyone who has to bring products to market, that that's like the key way uh, you iterate on it. I think what's so great about media companies and the way they can do this is that um, the barrier to entry for usage of an email newsletter or even a news article or some piece of content that you put online is uh, really, really low, right? Like almost anyone can sign up for that. And so you can get feedback really, really easily from big uh, scales of people. Um, So yeah, that kind of, I think that's actually one of the great things about newsletters for media companies is that everyone who's getting that message is identified and there is even the possibility to encourage them to reply to the newsletter Uh, and ask questions. And this way you get that uh, one-to-one relationship with your reader where you probably wouldn't get that same person necessarily writing on a comment thread because a comment thread is like, 
you know, truly public and it's like they're posting it to the internet forever. It's not really a relationship with the creators of the content itself, which I think a different kind of person uh, is willing to share their time and their feedback with people that way. I think you also have to follow up with that promise, which I think uh, Eva was talking about when she was discussing um, giving value for getting value. Uh, but that's actually, you know, you talked about how that relates back to building a product and building a company. That's absolutely what you have to think about when you're in the earlier stages and even now, like, you know, what value are we actually giving to our customers to, you know, be so presumptuous to ask them for money? Um, and in this case, you're not asking for money, but you are asking for uh, a slice of time that is very valuable for them and a portion of their day or a portion of their uh, screen or a portion of their uh tool, which in this case is email, which is also very intimate to them. So you have to like not only get them to subscribe, but that email that they get, that first newsletter, and you know, you're always getting new people every single time you send out a newsletter, has to be so important that they're gonna read that. And then the next time they're gonna come back and say like, that was really good shit. I'm gonna <laughs> read this one too. Um, that's I think how you build that type of loyalty because it is that intimate space. It is that place where you know you have a shot at gaining them and you probably don't have very many other shots after that. And so you have to make sure that they see that value front and center. Yeah. So Sachin, I think it's time to take a trip down memory lane. Let's do some plus ones and minus ones. We're clearly not in the mobile first generation here, but uh, we do have experience with other forms of technology and things that for me bring back a lot of nostalgia. So let's go through a few different things that are going to be nostalgic certainly for me and hopefully for you too, Andrew. Let's start off with one of uh, the things that I have uh, very strong memories about, which is using AIM or using MySpace, which one brings up more nostalgia for you? Oh, definitely AIM for me. Uh, AIM was like my entire uh, high school social network, basically. AIM for me too, AOL Instant Messenger for life. Who cares about MySpace and whatever music you play? Yeah, the funny thing about AIM is apparently they only shut it down a couple of years ago and there were still a lot of users, apparently. (laughs) So it's uh, these things can stick around for quite some time. Uh, Let's move on to the next one. Blockbuster versus Netflix DVD rentals. So for those that don't know, Netflix (laughs) used to be a DVD rental service where you got mailed a physical DVD instead of getting all your content streamed. And Blockbuster used to be a store that you could go to to rent VHS um, and I guess a little bit later on DVDs. Yeah, so for for me, when, when Netflix DVD was in its prime, which I guess was in high school for me, maybe yeah i guess that's right in high school uh i would say that i still personally enjoyed going to blockbuster for the instant gratification but i used to get all my like sort of art house movies from netflix dvd rentals because i could plan those in advance and have them coming on the weekend Uh, but i would still say at the time anyway blockbuster was the winner uh just in terms of uh which one had me watching more movies on a regular basis But with Netflix, man, there was something about the queue that was just like really exciting to me about having your queue of DVDs that would be coming. And I love to like rearrange that queue and then like our family would fight over the positions there. So I actually think I have more memories with the Netflix queue than I do with Blockbuster itself. All right. Mixed tapes or mixed CDs? 
I, I kind of miss the mixtape era personally. I think this maybe was just like an age thing or me. I don't know, but I, uh, no, it wasn't an age thing. Cause we we're the same age and I was definitely all over mixtapes. You were? Yeah. So I don't, yeah. yeah, I guess it's just like, maybe I personally didn't get into music until high school that much. And maybe it's something like that, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'm all mixed CDs. That's, I used to have a CD burner, burned a lot of CDs, like kind of like bought, I think I remember, a cd player for my car in high school so that i could play my burn cds on it and things like that so yeah lots of mix cds i had a friend who actually gave me a mixed tape in college so it went all the way through high school into college um, i'm definitely a fan of a good mixtape. tape there's nostalgia all over that and that's it for this episode thanks for listening and our thanks to eva scazzaro for joining us as a guest Good news, we're now on Spotify, so you can subscribe to the Center of Attention there and on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. If you enjoy the show, please tell a colleague or tell a friend. Send it to their inbox. You can also follow our hosts on Twitter. Andrew is at Amon Talenti, and Sachin is at Sachin Kamdar. Thanks for listening, and remember, it's AIM or AIM. No one knows for sure. Until next time.